0: Many in the media have been highlighting the problems of inflation and rising gas prices. They demone the negative impact these have on American workers and their families. What they never seem to mention, though, are the things that would help American workers weather the temporary storms caused by having to pay 20 cents more for a gallon of gas or milk. Like providing universal health care, free college tuition, child care from birth, and a radical suggestion I know— maybe making sure they have a living wage. Instead, we have the phrase working poor, which should be an oxymoron in the world's richest country. But so should free man Mark fucking Meadows. But here we are. (laughs) ¶¶ Understand that jobs requiring less specialization don't command high salaries because, at least theoretically, most people could do them and there is, therefore, more competition for them. I think we misuse the word unskilled when it comes to certain kinds of labor, however. If you've ever seen a farm worker pick radishes, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. Whether there's a lot of competition or not for a particular job should be completely irrelevant to whether or not an employee gets a living wage. If a business has a job that requires a full-time worker, then that job should pay enough for the worker who does the job to cover all living expenses and have some left over to, I don't know, live? The other assumption people make is that so-called unskilled work is easy, to which I say, go get a job flipping burgers for eight hours a day and see how long you last. When I was a freshman in college, I had a job in one of the campus dining rooms washing dishes. It remains some of the hardest work I've ever done in my life, and I got paid minimum wage, which at the time was $3.35 an hour. I've been thinking about all of this recently for two reasons. The first is the fact that last week the defense budget was passed in the House without any haggling or demands that the cost be offset by cuts to other programs. There was no hostage-taking, no grandstanding about the fact that the Defense Department doesn't turn a profit, unless there's something about military marching bands I don't know. Nope, it passed quietly and without drama. Only 70 members of the House voted against the bill, all Democrats, all progressives. Last week, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer indicated that the Senate would pass the bill without amendments. The $768 billion budget, is $28 billion more than the Biden administration asked for, this despite the fact that we just ended a costly 20-year war. The defense budget is a tenth of all federal spending and almost half of all discretionary spending, which is spending that needs to be approved by the president and Congress every year. America spends more on defense, about $20 billion more, than the next 11 countries combined. Federal spending on public education, on the other hand, totaled approximately $73.5 billion, about 10% of the total, the rest of which is paid for by states and districts. Perhaps this explains why it's necessary for teachers to pay for school supplies out of their meager paychecks, for schools to ask parents to donate paper towels and hand sanitizer, and for banks to sponsor dive for cash events in which teachers get down on their knees in order to fight over some dollar bills in the hopes of being able to afford decorations for their classrooms. The bank that sponsored the dive for cash event in South Dakota a couple of days ago has since apologized, but they have yet to explain why the 10 teachers who participated were wearing helmets. My guess is they were hoping for not just a spectacle, but a violent spectacle in which the 10 teachers on their knees in the middle of an ice skating arena would fight to the death for a few bucks. I hope this awful event will spur a lot of people to join the clear the list movement in which people purchase items off of teachers' Amazon wish lists of much needed school supplies. But it begs the question, why are school districts unable to purchase the most basic supplies for their students? And how can so many people in this country live with the cognitive dissonance they must experience when they contemplate the dystopian ethical bankruptcy of holding such contests in what they believe is the greatest, most perfect country on the planet? This is what happens when you underfund necessary services and don't pay people a living wage. Their vulnerability under such circumstances to higher gas prices on one end of the spectrum and a medical emergency on the other creates a circumstance in which the importance of money overshadows almost everything else. Yes, we can blame obstructionist Democrats like Manchin and Sinema, and I do, but the bigger problem is that 100% of Republicans in Congress voted against every aspect and version of Build Back Better. I take issue with the blithe way in which Democrats give the go ahead to those outrageous levels of defense spending, as if such displays are necessary to prove your patriotism or something. But I know, if given the opportunity, they would significantly increase spending on programs that directly improve people's lives, because they almost always do. It's quite a trick the right has pulled off over the last few decades, starting with Reagan. Keeping people so ignorant about how government works that they think it's okay that the government we all pay our taxes to don't spend enough on things that directly benefit us and our children. Like, for example, free school lunches while allocating over $300 million a year to those aforementioned military marching bands. So what exactly is worth paying for? I'm all for teaching and participating in arts of any kind, but if anybody thinks it's okay to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on military bands playing John Philip Sousa while denying our kids music programs of their own, let alone up-to-date textbooks and adequate facilities, you can go fuck yourself. I am so excited, I can't even tell you. Uh, that my very good friend Joyce Vance is here today she is a brilliant legal mind she is uh, a contributor to MSNBC um, and one of the co-hosts of the amazing podcast hashtag sisters in law and I am so happy to welcome you hey Joyce
1: Uh, I'm glad you've joined the Politicon family, Mary. You're a podcast that we've all needed for a long time, and I'm glad we're finally getting you. Thanks. Um, I have so much to talk to you about. Um,
0: It's hard to know where to start. I guess one thing is, you know, do you ever sleep? Because I was talking to a friend I, I, of mine and it seems like yeah. you're on morning, Joe, and then you're on the 11th hour. How does, how does that even work? I,
1: I think sleep is highly overrated. And one of my friends, one of my colleagues during the Obama administration, uh, Paul Fishman, who is the U.S. attorney in New Jersey, at one point where we'd been working um, really at a high speed on, on a project, Paul looked at me and said, we can sleep when it's over. Yeah, uh, it's never over, though this is a problem.
0: It really isn't. Yeah. Oh, you're also a law professor, which is kind of...
1: I am. And that's actually my day job. And and one of the best parts of getting to do what I do is um, getting to spend time with young law students. And I I suspect I learn as much, if not more from them than they learn from me. Law students today are a lot further along and smarter and experienced than they were when I was going to law school. So that really is um, my favorite part of the day. Yeah, and you know what what is i think a disadvantage for those of us who
0: have to live through all of this is an advantage to students who actually are getting
1: real life experiences of the kind of things you're teaching them. Um it's it the irony never leaves me that I teach a seminar called Democratic Institutions and I plotted that class out probably I guess it's been 6 years ago now. And some some days when I teach it, especially this semester, it feels more like current events than teaching doctrinal law. So there is that.
0: Yeah, especially since um, we kind of had some uh, close calls in the last five years
1: uh, in in the context of our institutions. What's, did you ever read Lemony Snicket books to um, Ava when she was little? I feel like that's the good title for what we're living through, A Series of Unfortunate Events. Yeah, that, that apparently nobody <laughs> seems to have any control over. <laughs> and it does lead to
0: an issue I know you grapple with. Uh, do we strengthen the institutions or do we uh, raise them or uh, do we reimagine them? somehow. Uh, where, where do you come down on that?
1: You know, it's such a timely question. And I think you know that over the weekend, I was um, writing uh, my column for CAFE for, for Tuesday, and I actually wrote a column on that topic. And then I just pitched it out the window and started over on a different topic. Because this question of institutions is such a difficult one. I am not a burn it all down kind of person. I think that the institutions that we have, I mean, you know, I'm not a textualist when it comes to the Constitution, but I believe in the institutions, I believe in the the tripartite structure of government, I believe in checks and balances, and I think that we are living at a point in time where not only do we need to reimagine the institutions, but where we actually can, and I'll use the criminal justice system as an example, you know. Uh, on the right, it's become very popular to campaign against anything that smacks of critical race theory. Well, I find that to be a very illuminating tool. One of my colleagues at the university, Richard Delgado, uh, is viewed as one of the, the primary sources, uh, creators of that theory. And what it helps us understand is how Rachel Animus animates the problems in many of our institutions. In the criminal justice system, for instance, where we have mass incarceration, where black people go to prison for longer than than white people, where there's more enforcement in in, um, black neighborhoods. That's very helpful to figuring out how do you fix the institution. And that's what I think the challenge that we have is, you know, in Newark, New Jersey, they just fired everybody in their police department and they rebuilt it back from the ground up. Sometimes you have to do that. Other times it's, um, I I don't want to say as simple as because none of this is simple, but it's simply recognizing that police officers don't have the training, the capacity to be first responders for people who are going through acute mental illness events. And all too often we have forced them into that position because we don't fund anybody else to do it. What a novel idea of um, re-envisioning how our social services institutions work. So, yes, all of the above. I'm for creative reimagining, but not just uh, in a theoretical sense. In a practical sense, because we need that work done now. Yeah, and the the two examples you just uh, pointed to
0: highlight a a problem we have on the left, which is helping people understand these things. All the right seems to need to do is say critical race theory and everybody panics and thinks suddenly we're trying to indoctrinate our children into believing that America is a racist. Oh wait, America is a racist country, but you know, (laughs) that we're teaching our children that, that white people, sorry, are, are bad, like inherently bad. Um, and that, you know, teaching them history will somehow scar white children.
1: Uh, so We don't have... um... Can can we just talk about how silly that is? I mean, I'm Jewish, I'm well-educated in what happened during the Holocaust, and my husband is half German, right? Teaching people about history doesn't cause them to vilify people, and and I think that's something we should call out every time it happens. History is so important.
0: Yeah, and, and there's this weird assumption among certain people that by educating us about Slavery and our our terrible history. I mean, we can't sugarcoat it. um, Is somehow to perpetuate it, and it's actually the opposite. By ignoring it, by pretending it didn't happen, by protecting white people from the history that has led to this moment, we ensure that nothing changes and the system continues to work
1: against uh, the most vulnerable among us, right? You know, the straight line is so clear where I live, and it's probably been a decade now. um, uh, But a decade ago, I did a program called Leadership Birmingham, which brings together people from all different sectors. You know, every community has a program like that. But we started our, our opening weekend with a historian, and he traced the straight line from slavery through Jim Crow, on into convict labor. And it was such an important layout. It was in no way controversial. It informed um, the work that this group did for the next year. And, you know, we were black and white and Hispanic and men and women and doctors, lawyers, bankers, nonprofit organizations, medical sector, you know, you you name it. There was somebody, something from every sector of our community. No one thought history was controversial. We live in a dark moment if history is controversial. We do. And it also suggests that, an important
0: component of that is is ignorance because if if we educated our children properly, they wouldn't for a second or adults who were properly educated wouldn't for a second fall into that trap. they would know that critical race theory is not taught in uh k through twelve schools it's a legal theory actually um but instead it becomes shorthand for um you know white we white people are endangered somehow Um, you know, if if we allow certain truths to be spoken then um, white people are going to be blamed for everything and that's not at all what's going on but again, the left doesn't seem to have an answer Um, you know you you spoke earlier about reimagining police departments which I think is crucially important for all sorts of reasons that we can get into but The defund the police uh, mantra was really problematic and I think in some ways ultimately detrimental to making the case. What do you think of that?
1: I think sometimes Democrats don't write as good of bumper stickers as Republicans do, right? Build the wall. I mean, boy, that was a a bumper sticker that that an entire part of our country coalesced around. Defund the police didn't have quite that same staying power. And so I think, you know, one of the things that people on the left need to do is be more careful and more deliberate about messaging And of course, you know, I've had this conversation with people and and their attitude is sort of, well, I don't really care. I mean, this is about me, not about them. I think something that we need to pay more attention to is how do we express our ideas in a way that draws a big circle that a lot of people can stand on to get around those ideas so we can put them into action? Because ultimately, I care a whole lot more about making progress than I care about who makes it or what bumper sticker it, it's made under. There's, there is just a lot of um, necessary change in the moment that we live in. Yeah, and I, I, I think it, it
0: speaks to the problem of creating a, a simple, digestible, unifying message to an incredibly diverse coalition, right? And I completely empathize with the sentiments behind defund the police, but it's not—it doesn't have a lot of explanatory power unless you know the issue inside it out. So unless we get bumper stickers that will fit on the side of eighteen-wheelers, <laughs> uh, or <laughs> figure out how to be more concise, it is kind of a losing
1: battle. Um, so yeah, it's a bummer when you have ideas that require explanation and have nuance and, and thought, right? It is, And
0: I think that gets back to what we were talking about earlier. If you keep people ignorant about how the system works, then it becomes much harder to explain it in a way that makes it seem relevant to their lives. Um, Whereas the right doesn't seem to have any compunction about using racism or lying or what have you to craft a compelling message. Um, I'm hoping, though, that... Uh, that's going to change because we finally had our first televised hearing from the January 6th special committee. And I'd like to think it was a game changer. I found it incredibly compelling and moving.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, this wasn't the kind of hearing where you have witnesses, right? We've already, they've had one, And we hear from Liz Cheney that in 2022, there's going to be a couple of weeks where the committee is going to actually put on, I think she said in in vivid color, I think that was her her quote, all the details of what happened on the 6th, you know, What happened at the White House? What happened on the Hill? Um, And so that's where the committee's heading. And we heard a little bit more about that from Chairman uh, Thompson last night when he opened. He said, we're not going to piecemeal out the details because we understand that when that happens, they become today's news and next week they're forgotten. We're going to do it for you all at once. I thought that was actually a really good signal that they're thinking about how do you tell a a country that's divided – a story that they can all get behind. And you do that by putting together the facts and having facts that can't be disputed and letting the country hear it from the mouths of witnesses, like, for instance, Mark Meadows. So that's the hearing that you referred to. This was the committee vote on whether to hold Meadows in contempt. And like you I took it as a good sign. Of, of course, this is a step in sending it over to the Justice Department and asking the Justice Department to prosecute the contempt. And we don't yet know what DOJ's decision will be, but it was a compelling presentation last night.
0: I, I was incredibly heartened by what Chairman Thompson said um, because I think that is so prescient in terms of understanding the times we live in and in terms of meeting the moment, and I always felt as a complete non-lawyer. So what do I know? But so hopefully you can help me. A you. mere psychologist, right? Okay. So so maybe <laughs> now <laughs> I don't I don't know what I'm talking about. But one of my instincts about what happened with Mueller is that he spread out the indictments over such a long period of time that when another low level guy was indicted, it was like oh, well, who cares? Whereas if he had brought all of them at once, it would have been like an avalanche. It would have been incredible uh, news that was impossible to ignore. Instead, like people kind of became inured to it and it lost its impact. I mean, I don't know, but that's-
1: That's an absolutely fascinating insight because you see it you know, in a totally different way than I see it. As a prosecutor, you bring cases against people in an effort to get them to cooperate and sort of move up the chain. You don't hold your cases to bring them all at once. You bring them when they're ready. That's sort of part of your job as a prosecutor is not to play games with timing. And the point that you make is is such a very interesting one about how the public perceives what's happening. Yeah, so...
0: Obviously, uh, that shouldn't be a consideration, but I do think a lot of people got frustrated or bored or lost interest because it didn't seem really relevant anymore, and the, the people really responsible didn't end up having anything happen to them, which leads me to our current DOJ. Um, I understand that you know they're going to be taking under advisement what to do with Mark Meadows and his contempt of Congress. Um, but what I really wonder about, because um, apparently, according to Matt Miller, it's a much closer call than Steve Batten.
1: Okay, n- wait a second. We can't say nice things about Matt Miller on this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely, that's just off limits. Um, you know, I, so now that I've said that, I will say Matt is not a lawyer. He is also one of the smartest guys I know with one of the best assessments of legal issues. And I actually agree with him. This is a much more difficult case than Bannon, because Bannon just totally failed to show up, didn't do anything, pretty much just said, you know, hey, let me spit in your faces and laugh about it on my podcast. Bannon was, um, I think, in the judgment of, of all of the former prosecutors that I talked to, a pretty clear case for prosecution. Meadows is not clear, but I'm going to make a rare, bold prediction for me, and I'm going to suggest that DOJ will prosecute here as well. First of all, I had no intention of saying anything nice about Matt Miller. All right, that's good. As long as we're on the same page there. Matt, I hope you're listening. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll send him the link. Um, <laughs> and secondly,
0: wow, we made news. You made a prediction, and it's a pretty- I did. <laughs> I absolutely love because it's, again, as, as a, a layperson— it's really difficult for me to understand how a man who was engaged in kind of campaigning, like there was nothing going on on January 6th that had anything to do with running the government unless you consider committing sedition and arms (laughs) insurrection part of running the government, which seems unlikely. So I get that he was uh, chief of staff, so therefore, Privilege would apply to him in a way it does not apply to Steve Bannon, who's sitting in his basement recording a podcast. I guess I shouldn't diss podcasters. But anyway, you can't really make that case for him. But um, again, since, since the activities we're talking about were so
1: far outside of the scope, I don't even understand why it's a close call. So I have sort of a different assessment of the situation, and and I'll tell you why I would prosecute and what I would prosecute for. I'm going to spot Mark Meadows, his assertion of privilege, you know. He wrote a privilege log and and listed documents that he was withholding and explained why he was withholding them. Let's just assume for the moment that he's correct. I actually don't think he is. I think that you're right that, you know, campaign events and sort of plotting an insurrection, not part of the executive branch's function. figure. Um, But let's just spot him that for the moment. Meadows then turned over, what is it that they're saying, 9,000 documents, Mm -hmm. conceding that they were not privileged. There is no way that he can claim that he doesn't have to testify, that he's somehow protected from testifying about that big tranche of documents that he has turned over. And and here's the thing about privilege. It's not like, you know, a big cuddly blanket that you get to snuggle up under and tell the world to go away your privilege. You actually have to show up pursuant to a subpoena and testify. And so the first question is, what's your name? And you can't just say, oh, no, executive privilege. You have to answer. And then let's say five or 10 questions in, they say, what did you advise the president about you know what he should wear for his press conference and then you say oh i'm sorry executive privilege i can't answer and the assessment is made question by question about what is and isn't privileged so meadows should have to show up like everybody else assert privilege where he thinks it's appropriate but if it's stuff that he's conceded is not privileged he has to answer the questions And the reason that I believe DOJ should prosecute is it sets a terrible precedent if you let somebody turn over a bunch of stuff and then say, but I'm not going to show up and testify. That's just an intolerable situation. And since DOJ is given the responsibility for criminal enforcement when somebody flouts Congress's authority— The option here is to prosecute. And then the last thing I'll say, Mary, is I thought Liz Cheney did a spectacular job of of laying this argument out last night. And she identified three areas where Meadows has conceded that what he's turned over isn't privileged and should be forced to testify. Um, One is Trump's failure to stop the violence at the Capitol. The second is the efforts to change the votes in states like Georgia. Meadows actually flew to Georgia, was on the phone call uh, where the request was made to find additional votes. And then finally, the plan to replace DOJ leadership with this guy named Jeffrey Bossert-Clark, who was willing to perpetuate the big lie. You know, Meadows has turned over documents, hasn't said there's privileged. He's got to show up and testify, and he should be prosecuted for contempt for the failure to do so.
0: Yeah, and and the uh, case was so compelling and so clear. Um, Representative Cheney did do a phenomenal job, credit where credit is due. I think to a person, though, um, they were very uh, clever about not overlapping. Um, They each brought a, a unique facet to the argument. And one of the things in watching it, that made me think about where we kind of are as a country, um, because these were it's it's bipartisan, and everybody was professional, uh, everybody was respectful. Their arguments were extraordinarily well crafted and intelligent and serious. You contrast that with hearings in which they're speaking to witnesses or they're speaking to nominees. And typically, Republicans are the opposite of what we saw last night. Uh, They're hyper-partisan. They're rude. They're not speaking about facts. They're just, you know, their only goal is to dirty up whomever they see as an opponent. And it makes me Concerned that um, things are so partisan in this country that Republicans watching the hearing, if in fact they ever get to see it, <laughs> because again, news is so siloed that I'm pretty sure if you're watching Newsmax, OAN, or Fox, you didn't see any of it unless it was a clip that was somehow spun to make it look like it was a, a you know getting revenge against. Uh, Republicans who were just there for a peaceful tourist visit or something um so it's it's sort of similar to to how I feel about people who who admire Donald like how do you explain uh that cognitive dissonance um and I I think that's why televising this stuff is so incredibly important
1: You know, it really is. But you you raised the additional question here, and this is the problem that the committee is going to have to conquer, is how do you get people to listen and pay attention? And I think you've pegged part of the answer, that the members of Congress who are on this committee – did an extraordinary job last night. It's clear that they are in agreement about the need to tell a cohesive narrative to the American people. They've also put together behind the scenes a pretty immaculate staff of former prosecutors who understand how to conduct an investigation. And I think, um, as importantly, what that team needs to do to support the work that the members of Congress are going to have to accomplish. They will be given a good, well-vetted narrative. You know, these these folks that are working with them will make sure that the evidence is unquestionable. They're not going to give them stuff that's speculative or that could be turned aside. And, and I think ultimately the hope is that it'll sort of be like Watergate, except that we no longer have three networks. You know, now you go to OAN and they're, they're not going to be playing the hearing, right? They're going to be playing. Kamala Harris bought an expensive copper pot to cook in. Um, But that's the committee's challenge. How are they going to be so ever-present? How are they going to make it impossible for people to not listen? I guess that's the question. How do you make it impossible for people to not watch what you're doing? Yeah, and and I I hope
0: they've thought that through um, because making those arguments as concisely and compellingly as possible— and broadcasting them uh, so they are unignorable uh, is really important, um, which kind of leads me to the DOJ.
1: <laughs> um, I knew that you were going to keep going back there. Well, Wait, can I ask you a question before we do DOJ? You can tell me no if you don't want to answer. Course you can ask me a question. <laughs> I mean, I sort of thought, and I wondered if you had the same impression that one of the things that went on yesterday is Liz Cheney reads these text messages from a bunch of people at Fox News, and she makes them look complicit. Is that a little bit of a challenge to Fox to go ahead and cover these hearings, perhaps more, um, I don't want to say fairly, but I'll say fairly, than they otherwise would? I I thought maybe that was going on there.
0: I hope you're right, uh, because that would be really smart. I don't know if it will be effective necessarily, but... Right now, those hosts, Laura Ingraham and Sean Hannity in particular, um, should be, I would think, terrified. Uh, I don't see how they avoid getting subpoenaed. And I don't think they're the ones who would be making that decision. I think it would be the powers that be um, who might rightly think that in order to diffuse the tension, in order to... Um, deflect a little bit, might have to be more open about uh, showing
1: what's going on. I don't know. You know, that's interesting. I think you saw me. I jumped back when you mentioned subpoenaing members of the press only because um, at, at DOJ, you just don't do that. You have to jump through so many hoops to get a search warrant on a member of the press's office. I mean, we're Extremely careful when there are First Amendment implications. And and my practice would always be to err on the side of caution, to let go of evidence I might want to have just to avoid um, affecting a free press. So that's an interesting prospect that you raise that some folks could actually find themselves subpoenaed. You know,
0: the reason uh, I completely agree with you, and um, I'm always in favor of uh, protecting a free press. I do not consider Fox, though, I, they, I, they're not journalists, first of all, and I think this is this is the the you know uh, this is what we have sown by allowing them to continue to to claim legitimacy. This is they shouldn't be in the White That's House. That's
1: a really hard question, though. I mean, I, I understand the point that you're making. I should also confess that in my background, before I went to the Justice Department as a lawyer in private practice, I did some First Amendment work and some defamation defense for media entities and and also some work representing newspapers. And I mean, I just have this real strong lean to be very deferential, whether I like what's going or not, to the press, because I think it's so important important that we protect that space. So it's going to be interesting to see what Congress does with this.
0: I mean, absolutely. It's a slippery slope, and, and we should avoid that at all costs. But I'm I'm thinking more specifically, how how can you make the claim that those text messages had anything to do with their being legitimate reporters? They were... were is that...
1: I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, you could just make the argument that they were trying to get information about what was going on in the White House. I just hadn't really thought about them as fact witnesses, Mary. And I I have to say, it makes me a little bit nervous. Um, and, And it sort of goes back to your question about strengthening institutions. I think we have learned, if nothing else in the last five years, how incredibly important a free press is. So I think before we do anything that could infringe on the press. You know, sometimes this is true as a lawyer too. You might have an individual case where you really wanna make a certain decision in that case. You wanna represent someone or you wanna prosecute someone. And you have to think past that one case and think about sort of the larger universe. What happens in the next case? What happens 10 cases down the road? Is this a good precedent or a bad precedent? Like you say, is it a slippery slope? And often you find that the immediate can be at loggerheads with the larger universe. And those are that's always where you have a tough decision to make.
0: Yeah, and listen, if it makes Joyce Vance nervous, I am going to follow your lead for sure because I don't know really what I'm talking about other than as, as an observer of these things and as somebody who doesn't at all believe that somebody like Laura Ingraham or Sean Hannity are, are legitimate journalists. But because they are allowed to pretend to be Um, then we need to, I guess, allow that. And the irony, I think, here would be if in protecting Fox, we actually end up protecting journalism because, as you mentioned, uh, the free press has been under unceasing, or was under unceasing attack for four years. So if that's that's the end result of letting, uh, you know, giving Fox a uh, pass, then I'm, I'm all for it.
1: It's a very strange world we live in.
0: Yeah, uh, it was supposed to get less strange. (laughs) But I guess that was a a diluted hope.
1: It's not happening. (laughs) No, and um, I'm going to drag you back, sorry. DOJ, okay, you're going to finally have at me.
0: Yeah, I am. Um, You published a piece today at Cafe.com. And um, with the understanding that it, it, it might... Make certain people not happy. so let's talk about Merrick Garland, shall we? Okay I understand uh, or I, I've been given to understand that he
1: is immune to any kind of political pressure, which I think is a good thing. Um, Every good attorney general has to be absolutely immune from political pressure right, which is expl-
0: explains why the last two were
1: so terrible.
0: Um, yes, or three. I forget about the other three, guy. Three, the toilet. Sales. Yes, the toilet guy. Um, but Jeff Sessions and Bill Barr, clearly two of the worst attorney general attorneys general of this country has ever had, the great misfortune to uh, witness. Um, so I, I'm all for that with Merrick Garland. But what happened last night? I mean, that wasn't political. That was that was a, a very well-researched, well-documented case. Um, oh, come on, it was still political.
1: It happened on the Hill. It's political. Well, okay, all right. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying? It, it, I do. I get what you're saying. They made they made a a good legal case based on as well as a political with 300
0: one. witnesses. Yeah. You know, this is, wasn't yeah. just this is what we want to think. So we we made the facts fit our narrative. the their narrative came from facts they've been compiling over months of going through God knows how many pages of documents, uh, speaking to dozens, scores, hundreds of people. So does that move the needle at all?
1: You know, what Congress will refer to DOJ will be a very narrow package. It will be the request to indict Mark Meadows for obstructing congress by failing to fully respond to their subpoena. So nothing else matters. None of the substance of matters nothing that happened on January 6th or Meadows' role matters. This is just about whether he's done everything he needs to do to comply with the, the subpoena or or whether his failure to comply has been so um sort of so broad that he merits indictment. And and look, Steve Bannon, as we've discussed, that's the easy case, right? Did nothing. This is more difficult. DOJ will have to make a decision about uh, whether to the point of our conversation, not about just this case, but thinking about future cases as well. Um, there are a lot of situations where you want to be able to protect executive branch employees, who are giving a president advice about how to do his job, and you don't want them to worry that they're going to get subpoenaed to Congress in the future and prosecuted if they assert executive privilege. And so implicitly wrapped up in this issue is whether there's any executive privilege for Meadows to assert for planning a coup. But also, you know, it's this question of of whether his behavior was so outside the boundaries of what's acceptable that it merits prosecution. And again, I don't think it's easy. I don't think DOJ will be making a two-week decision. But I think that they will prosecute in this case, although they may not be happy about doing it.
0: But, but I'm also talking about the larger issue of January 6th. And I know the hearing last night was specifically about Meadows and his role as chief of staff and his role vis-a-vis the events that unfolded on January 6th. But it also did, uh, in, in the presentations, we, we did get a glimpse into other actors um, who...
1: Not made... naming any names, but Donald Trump... Who? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that guy. That guy.
0: Um, yeah. And and is one of his sons. And Congress people, which, as Adam Schiff said, is chilling. So, obviously, we, do, we don't know what's happening at DOJ. We don't know definitively um, what's going on. But it does worry me. Uh, I mean, should we be concerned... Uh, That perhaps they are making a decision that by pursuing any of this, it would be too political um, or that they're coming down on the side of if we pursued this, it would be too dangerous. I, I don't know. I'm getting worried. We're running out of time.
1: Well, you know, Congress may be working on a short timeline, but DOJ is not. Uh, unless this yeah. incoming, you know, putative Republican majority impeaches Joe Biden and, and we have a change of attorneys general, uh, the clock on this DOJ is a little bit longer than mm. than what this particular Congress has Um Lots of questions there, Mary. I mean, I think the big one is, you know, there's a a lot of um, Merrick Garland fever in this country. People who think he's not up to the job and that he would resign and what have you. And I think it's very difficult to assess an administration while it's in progress. Because the truth is, we don't know what Merrick Garland has in mind. We don't know if he's planning on giving everybody involved at a higher level a pass Or, you know, maybe he is running the um, quiet investigation that most prosecutors would prefer to run in a case like this, and we'll find out who he's going to indict and what he's going to indict them for when he's ready. I think what's probably going on is DOJ is investigating, collecting evidence, they're watching what's going on on Congress, and at some point they will have to make a decision. I I doubt that they've made it already. Mm -hmm. It was interesting to hear Liz Cheney use um, language yesterday that paralleled some of the charges that have been brought against some of the lower-level January 6th protesters who've been charged under 18 U.S.C. 1512 with obstructing or impeding an official proceeding. And to hear Liz Cheney making the case that that could also apply to what Donald Trump did that day when he declined to call off the rioters. So that was a pretty interesting, you know, I really felt like she was in many ways talking to DOJ as much as she was talking to her colleagues.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And you're you're pointing out that DOJ has a very different timeline is also something worth reminding people, including me about because
1: their timeline cannot be an election is coming up, right? No, it can't. And, And let me say something good about this DOJ that I think gets lost in the conversation. There's one area where we can see in a very precise way what this Justice Department is about. And that's in the area of civil rights. Absolutely. You know, This is a Justice Department that has done more pattern or practice investigations into police departments in the first six months that they were in place than prior administrations had done in their entirety. And and look, this was not an easy transition at DOJ. You know, Merrick Garland's team, they came into an institution that was broken. Where people were demoralized, where line prosecutors had had to convince themselves day by day to stay at the department, and their first job was to restore good order. And that's hard to do. You know, my group of U.S. attorneys, we came in after the Bush administration where nine U.S. attorneys had been fired for political reasons, and, and there was some sense of dysfunction that had to be restored that that pales in comparison to what this group has had. That was an all hands on deck exercise to begin to um, get everything back to where it needed to be. So in in civil rights, the performance has been immaculate. There have been criminal prosecutions on the civil rights side of the house, um, you know, against uh, Derek Chauvin who murdered George Floyd. Criminal prosecution. Also in Georgia, in the Ahmad Arbery case that has just concluded, there are criminal civil rights charges uh, against the three men involved in in that murder. And so I think if we're trying to assess whether we can trust this Justice Department, when it comes to January 6th, we just don't know and we can't know because it's still in progress. But in this other area where I can see their work, boy, have they done a lot that deserves my trust and my faith.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. And it, it, and that should be underscored and highlighted and shouted from the rooftops because um, the Civil Rights Division has been uh, gutted over the last five years. And um, the fact that they're doing such extraordinary work is, is, you know, it's one of the most important things that, that the DOJ has to do. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, when I say DOJ, it isn't fair of me. I should be more specific. I'm specifically talking about the DOJ vis-a-vis January 6th and the insurrection. And, and, you know, this, this, this terrible fear a lot of us have that American democracy is at risk and letting it slide will, will just be, uh, you know, opening
1: the door to worse things, um, And can we just name the fear that we have? Because I think we all have this. It's the fear that Donald Trump, who's gotten away with all sorts of bad for his entire life, will get away with this too, right? That's what the American people want. They want to see someone who did so much damage to the republic held accountable for that damage, because otherwise... How do we have confidence in our our justice system, and and it can't work if we don't have confidence in it. And I think that's the question so many people have: is we don't see Merrick Garland doing anything when it comes to Donald Trump. We want to know what he's going to do, and the problem is the way the justice system works. We're really not going to know until he either does it or leaves office. And and living with that lack of certainty is very difficult. At least for me, it's very difficult.
0: And it brings up that question of of the clock right um on the one hand you say justice delayed is justice denied but on the other it seems that people like donald often use the clock in their favor um and the master of delay that's definitely true yeah so how is that justice and i i worry because it allows um a lot of people in the media, or lazier people in the media anyway, to treat Donald like he, the only important thing we need to know about him is whether or not he's running again, to which I say that's the wrong question. The question should be, why should he be allowed to, right? And um, we, don't, we don't have the luxury of time there, uh, so I guess it, it is hard for people don't have your expertise to be as um, patient, or um, maybe that's the wrong word, but to have the
1: context uh, that makes this all seem less (laughs) scary. Yeah. I mean, I'm not at all patient. I would like to know the ending of the book, right? If somebody would just tell me right now, don't worry, there's going to be, you know, I, I mean... You can never guarantee a conviction, right? But there will be some form of legal action to hold Trump and the people responsible for what happened on January 6th, to hold them to account. I would then just sit back and relax and watch it happen. And, of course, yeah. it's not going to work that way. But I think that this phrase, justice delayed is justice denied, is getting used wrongly. Um, You know, justice delayed is justice denied is a phrase that, in my mind, conjures up the civil rights era and stuff like the 16th Street church bombing where, because of racial animus, there was never a real effort to hold the bombers accountable. A couple of them were prosecuted, but it really took until, you know, almost 50 years later when Doug Jones reopened the cold case to do it. That's what I think about. People who are upset because... 11 months after January 6th, Donald Trump hasn't been prosecuted. I think that's when my perspective as a prosecutor comes in handy. I know that public corruption cases, which are among the most complicated cases that we do as prosecutors, they can take years to come to fruition. I mean, if you're investigating a mayor or a county commission, you can be talking about three, four, five, six years for these cases to come together. That's not because prosecutors or investigators are lazy or because they're off on vacation instead of working. That's because putting together the evidence, going through the grand jury process, analyzing financial data, this stuff takes time. Yeah. And, and it's not like, you know, a TV show where everything comes together. A lot of stuff doesn't work and you have to keep going back and trying and figuring it out. So if what's happening right now, is ongoing investigation, we should all sit back and, although it's very difficult, give the Justice Department the time it needs to put its investigation together, because the worst thing that could happen would be, let's say Merrick Garland did feel public pressure, which I think we agree he doesn't, and he decided, oh, I need to go ahead and indict this case tomorrow. Let's say he indicted before all of the evidence had come to light. Before, for instance, trained investigators had had the opportunity to follow the money, always a really enlightening sort of an inquiry and one that takes a whole lot of time because structurally, you know, if you serve a subpoena on a bank, they're going to get usually a minimum of 30 days to respond, but sometimes a lot more. And then somebody has to look through those thousands of pages and figure out what they all mean. And you have to get in witnesses. Oh, it's so complicated. Yeah. Um, Let's give the man the time he needs to do the job, right? Nobody wants him to go in prematurely and lose a case that would be won. And we know how that works. We know that more evidence comes to light over time because if Mark Meadows is indicted by DOJ, the level of compliance that the January 6th committee will get from future witnesses will be enhanced Mm -hmm. um, and a lot more evidence will come to light over time.
0: Yeah and again as as a layperson um it it's it is difficult to uh reach that level of equanimity about it if if that's even the word because i i know he's guilty right <laughs> there's so much circumstantial evidence there's so much evidence that's not necessarily circumstantial right and it it
1: this, and that, but that ex- here's the hard part, Mary. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are not a country where we we get to indulge in chanting, you know, lock her up. We're a country that believes in process and mm-hmm. fairness and, and justice, even for people when we don't like their actions. Whether it's a heinous murder, you know, whether it's a, a young drug dealer or whether it's a former president who may have engaged in insurrection, we are a rule of law country precisely because we want to have confidence in outcomes. Boy, is that frustrating in this moment that we're living through. But we will be stronger if we let those processes work here. I do not disagree.
0: Um, what I'm kind of talking about, though, in a, beyond this issue is the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, Donald has been getting away with awful crimes for decades and has never, ever been held accountable. So it's not just this. And I think it's, it's that long string of failures along the way that makes this even less bearable.
1: And that impacts you and me, right? I, th- I think that that's really hard is to look at everything of course, some of that stuff appears to be coming out in the wash, right? It looks like the New York Attorney General and a couple mm-hmm. of DAs up there are hard at work on some business fraud issues. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's one very interesting area. The um, Fulton County DA in Georgia appears to have an active case on uh, efforts to interfere with the Georgia election. That'll be very interesting. I wonder if we won't be in a different place where, you know, we'll celebrate New Year's Eve five years from now and look back and say, wow, that was really horrible. Can you believe we um, lived through that, you know, and and don't whoever it is that gets prosecuted, don't they all look great in orange jumpsuits? Um, You know, maybe we will have that moment. But I I think a, a point that's that's really critical to me here is this one. We are learning what it takes to trust in a government and what it takes to trust in a criminal justice system. And it's not enough to just have laws. You can't put everything into the law. To some extent, there has to be confidence in norms and in the good faith of people that are running the system. And so that's what this is really about Will the Justice Department and the Congress find a way to hold Trump and those around him accountable so that all of our faith in the system can be restored? I mean, it's a, it's sort of an existential question, and I don't know that the criminal justice system is up to providing a satisfying answer because Merrick Garland can't consider all the failures in the past to hold Trump right. accountable. All he can do is look at whatever, you know, potential crimes they believe are predicated for investigation and determine whether they have sufficient evidence. And it's complicated because sometimes you have evidence, but the law isn't clear. One of the issues that you're duty-bound to explore as a prosecutor is not just if you can convince a jury to convict, right? That's the easy part. All of my former trial lawyer colleagues are rolling their eyes as I say that's the easy part. (laughs) The hard part is the appellate part. The hard part is getting affirmed on appeal. And we've seen in public corruption cases, you know, the the Virginia case, O'Donnell, um, if the law is ambiguous— you know Blagojevich, where part of his conviction, the Illinois governor, gets reversed because the law is not clear. Those are the sorts of really inside of baseball issues that Merrick Garland will have to evaluate before he engages in any of these prosecutions. Because the worst thing in the world is getting the conviction at trial and losing it on appeal. No one is well served when that happens. No, of course not. And and all of
0: that. Uh... Just speaks to how, how complicated the time we're living in is right now. It it, it speaks to uh, the real limitations of the legal system and the biases uh, and the fact that I'm really sorry, but there are two justice systems, at least. <laughs> you know, If you're white, if you're rich, if you're white and rich, um, it's a totally different kind of scenario that will play out for you. And we're also reminded just how much we take for granted in this country. Not all of us, of course, but a lot of us um, have the luxury of taking for granted that democracy is something we're going to have forever and we don't have to work for it, for example. So um, I I hope, if nothing else, that what's happening now and the ways in which everything's unfolding will underscore the importance of challenging this the unfair the things that are unfair in the system that are kind of built into the system and also have help people stop taking things for granted and understanding that just as as in any other kind of relationship you know you have to work at it it's just not going to be great forever if you ignore it and take it for granted so there can are that up. please
1: be your next book? Will you please write a book about, you know, sort of like relationship therapy for Americans <laughs> and their democracy? Because I think what you said makes so much sense. You can't take it for granted, right? What is it that Ben Franklin said? A republic if you can keep, you can it. keep it. It yeah. is sort of like being in a marriage. And, and, and you're right, we're not working at it hard enough. No. And, and
0: there are all sorts of reasons and a lot of very complicated reasons. But I think one reason is quite simple. We just never understood that dem- democracy is quite fragile and if we had had any sense of world history we would have known that democracies don't typically fare well in the long term.
1: Yeah. So sobering and sobering words sorry that's sobering words but I think it's true.
0: Yeah, it's sobering and and here we are and we didn't even talk about the supreme court yet which I know would be a very brief conversation but uh
1: Oh, yeah, very brief. I don't have many thoughts about that at all. I didn't think you would,
0: but you did and and I know uh, it was taken a little bit out of context, but um you know in in discussing uh the way the Supreme Court, at least five of the nine uh the five so called originalists um have been approaching. SB8, uh, the law in Texas that essentially overturns, raid, uh, Wade, sorry, that overturns Roe v. Wade and essentially <laughs> makes, it, uh, makes women in Texas second-class citizens who do not have the full rights uh, that, are, that, that they're entitled to under the Constitution. Um, and obviously, there's also a vigilante aspect to that law. Uh, so you, you said, and I'm paraphrasing, essentially, you know, I confess that uh, I don't have faith in this, in, in this court anymore, which coming from you was um, quite uh, something.
1: You know, it is so troubling to see what the Supreme Court has done in this Texas case on two different levels— one is just the way we've been talking about two different justice systems um, in America. I'm also starting to feel like there are two different justice systems, one for abortion cases and one for everything else, because here's how the way our jurisprudence works. If a state passes a law that clearly violates a constitutional right, and state legislatures do that from time to time to try to make some sort of political points, um, then what happens is someone immediately sues to block that law from going into effect. They aren't asking the court to adjudicate whether it's constitutional or not. They ask for an injunction. That means block the law from going into effect. And those injunctions are routinely granted. And until this Texas case came along, that's what had happened Every state statute, I live in Alabama, so I've lived through this a time or two, right? Every time a state legislature violated, passed a law that violated Roe, somebody went to federal court and the federal courts enjoined the law and there it sat in, in abeyance while litigation was ongoing. Until Texas, and, and here's what I think is so horrible about what the Supreme Court has done in Texas. Texas explicitly, I mean, there's no pretense about this. Texas says, okay, if we just pass the usual law, it's going to get enjoined. Let's do something different. Let's have a vigilante justice mechanism where the state of Texas won't be enforcing the law. We'll let anybody in the country who wants to sue people who help women get abortions and collect $10,000 from them. And that'll create so much fear and so much uncertainty that women will quit getting abortions. But, you know, we won't have anything to do with it. The Supreme Court should have seen through that in about 10 seconds. And instead, the first time this case goes to the Supreme Court on the shadow docket, um, you know, we get justices who in the two-paragraph typical shadow docket sort of a ruling say, gee, what are we going to do? We don't know who we would enjoin in this case. It's such a novel sort of a thing. So complex. Instead, you know, they should have just said, Texas, no, you can't. You can't do this. We have a rule of law system and you can't avoid it through this pretense. But they didn't do that. What is more disturbing now that they have briefed the case and heard the case on the merits, the court essentially says the same thing. And they say, you know, abortion providers in Texas, you can't sue the attorney general. You can't sue the the Um, judges or the clerks of court, because that's a mechanism where you could actually prevent them from accepting cases that were filed under SBA, which would have a real um, ability to restore the rights of pregnant people in Texas. Instead, they say, well, maybe you can sue the medical licensure people, but that's not a very good remedy. And so while this case is ongoing SBA is the law of the land in Texas. And if you're a woman who seeks an abortion, you do so knowing that, you know, your husband who helps you, the doctor who advises you, the medical people who perform it, the Uber driver who drives you to the procedure, those folks are all doing so at the risk of being sued. And that is, in in the language of my people, Meshuggah's, right? Yeah. It's, it's utter chaos. For the court to do that really, I think, is, gives me a crisis of faith in this court's ability to look beyond the result they want. Sure enough, they're all, you know, they're all against abortion, this 6-3 Republican majority, and we all get that. But part of being a judge, it's just like being a prosecutor. You have to check your personal beliefs at the door when you go to work and follow the law. I don't think the court did that in this case. That's what's
0: so disturbing. Obviously, it's much more disturbing that there have been no reproductive rights in Texas for 105 days now. Um, but also disturbing is the fact that the
1: 6-3 majority feels no need at all. Well, it's really to it's sort pretend. of hard. There's different parts of the case or different majorities. I think that part is. Five, I'd say five four. four. Yeah, yeah, the five. Um, but they they don't. You're you're right. There is not a um, a pretense. They just sort of. Ignore that whole context. And, you know, the the chief justice, no huge fan of abortion rights, um, in his concurring opinion, sort of makes that rule of law point. And, of course, Justice Sotomayor is particularly eloquent um, talking about the disservice to the rule of law that's being done where the court is willing to pretend that Texas has no involvement in enforcing its own law. That's really the tragedy here. This sort of ends justify the means approach that has led the court to do this. And look, we all know that winter is coming, right? The Mississippi case is coming. Roe versus Wade either gets reversed or gutted. And so it's not like what's happening in Texas is unanticipated, mm-hmm. it's just so deeply disappointing that they don't even feel compelled to go through the motions of complying with what we all understand the law in this area is. No, and and what in
0: some ways makes it worse is that uh, with Governor Newsom's using this example to allow people to go go after... Uh, people who want assault weapons and shadow guns, et cetera. Um, the court. Somebody said to me, "Well, you know, they're, they're, the courts opening themselves up to uh, this being this president being used in ways that they won't like." So I think that's the challenge that that's the gauntlet Newsom's throwing down. But if 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 you think that the, that five on the Supreme Court, court care <laughs> about being seen as hypocritical. They have a bridge to sell you uh over there um because I don't think they care, and I think they would be perfectly comfortable upholding s b eight and knocking down whatever it is, Newsom comes up with. I hope I'm being too cynical, but that's that's how this court makes me feel.
1: Well, I think that they'll distinguish it, and and maybe they'll say um, that Second Amendment rights are embedded in the Constitution, <laughs> yeah. and the word abortion doesn't appear there. You know, Mary, the hypothetical that I've been thinking about, I haven't really worked it all the way through, but I was talking with my sister-in-law, Barb McQuaid, about this yesterday. Is what if a st- you know how there are people who are um, who protest outside of clinics? Abortion clinics and they Mm -hmm. sort of really try to go one on one with people that are walking in to get abortions in a very aggressive way. But they have to stay a certain number of feet back. There's a federal um, law that protects entry into clinics. Mm -hmm. Well, what if a state passed a law just like the Texas law, but what it did was it permitted lawsuits against those protesters? They're within their legal limits, but they're you know, confronting people that are going in to get abortions, and now they can all be sued for $10,000 every time that they do that. I don't know why that's any different than what SB8 does. Those folks have a First Amendment right to be mm-hmm. out there protesting. That's right. But, you know, why can't Vermont or, you know, California pass that law? It just seems like this is such a— um such a, an inappropriate way to handle one of the most controversial issues of our time. Abortion is a difficult and complex issue that will have to be resolved. And perhaps the resolution is to leave it up to each state to do whatever its legislature wants to do, based on certain national standards. I've always been a fan of Roe versus Wade. I think it's a an elegant solution to a difficult, complicated problem. You know, Roe gets gets weakened in my judgment a little bit with Casey and the Undue Burden Mm -hmm. Standard, which allows states to do a little bit more to legislate abortion. It's an uneasy compromise, but it's worked well for 50 years. Mm -hmm. I was very moved by the language of the Mississippi Attorney General in her amicus brief, you know, where she said, women have made such great strides in society. And I'm thinking, yes, and this is because of Roe versus Wade. And then she says, so we can really do away with Roe because women have arrived. And you're thinking, wow, sister, you just really do not understand the terrain here. And you're um, thinking, uh, you know, uh, Roberts and voting rights. Well, yeah, well you know, everything's it's, fine it's now. Ruth Ginsburg's umbrella, right? It's yep. the dissent in Shelby County versus Holder where Justice Ginsburg says, people who want to do away with the Voting Rights Act are the same people that would stand in the middle of a rainstorm holding their umbrella and say, well, I'm still dry, so I don't need the umbrella <laughs> anymore. Precisely. Um, and that's where we are with abortion, too. But, but yeah, seeing this results-oriented special rules for abortion because this conservative majority doesn't like abortion, that I think is really disheartening to people who believe in the rule of law.
0: Yes. Uh, yeah, it, it just adds to this, the heaviness of everything we're living through, especially since some of us, like me, think that uh, at least three justices in
1: the Supreme Court are there illegitimately. Um, Well, you guys and Larry Tribe, who, you know, was on Joe Biden's Supreme Court commission and just wrote a pretty impassioned piece calling for the court to be expanded um, for precisely that reason, because he believes that uh, at least two, maybe three seats were improperly um, seated. And it's I mean, it's tough, right, just to visit well-rehearsed facts that everybody knows. Um, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, refused to give Merrick Garland a vote for the Supreme Court because no vote should be had during the last year of a presidency. And then he sponsored and and rushed Amy Coney Barrett through a vote after people had actually started voting in 2020. That's right. There's some hypocrisy for you. I, I, well, exactly. And he embraces it. Um,
0: and that is actually the one thing that I, I took issue with with uh, Representative Thompson, Chairman Thompson's uh, opening, um, saying how history will remember these people. They don't care. They just want what they want when they want it, and they're going to do whatever they can, no matter. I, even Bill Barr, who allegedly is a
1: devout Catholic, said, what do I care? I'll be dead. <laughs> Well, Bill Bill Barr is his own kettle of fish. Yeah. I gotta believe that um, Mark Meadows. I think that there's some sting to knowing that the first line in his obituary, you know, will be, first, you know, former member of Congress to be held in contempt since whenever it was the 1800s. I, I think that that's got a sting. You know, yeah. that's really funny. I, I would think that the, the thing that would most
0: get get to him would be being known as. Donald Trump's fourth chief of staff, but that's me.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's always good to be somebody's fourth choice for something, I guess.
0: Fourth time's the charm, as
1: they say. Uh, so, Joyce, can, can you stay show another... Show ourselves like, out after those. Can you stay another four hours or so?
0: I'll whip Yeah, up absolutely. Cocktails. I've got
1: all the time you want. Let me get my husband to refill my sweet tea. I mean, seriously, I, I, I could... Uh, Go on and on, but I don't want to keep you forever. This is but this is good. I feel like it's sort of like therapy. So thank you for having me. I feel much better after talking to you.
0: Oh wow, I feel much smarter (laughs) after talking to you. So everybody wins. Everybody wins. Uh, Seriously, I am grateful for you. You bring to these incredibly difficult conversations such a measured confidence inspiring approach. I mean I think that's why so many people value your commentary. you know you're unflappable um, whereas the rest of us are sort of flying off the handle because we're freaking out. You manage to put things in perspective and explain things in a way that helps us understand them and and challenge our own assumptions about things, which in a lot of cases, as I've demonstrated today, aren't based on anything other than a gut feeling and that's that's not the best way to go through life so um what you do for us is um extraordinary and i'm grateful for that and much more importantly i'm I'm grateful for your friendship it's been one of the best things that's happened in the last year and a half so thank you
1: me too here's to online women's circles during the pandemic they made us all better
0: Absolutely. Um, And let's never have a
1: pandemic again. But yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank
0: you, Joyce.
1: Thank you, Mary. I really enjoyed being on with you today. (laughs) Stay safe.
0: One of my favorite things about doing this podcast is getting the chance to answer your questions. So if you have any, please send an email to, this is all one word, the Mary Trump Show at Politicon.com, and I'll get to as many of them as I can. Uh, today, the first question is from Sheila in Calgary, Canada, and she asks Are you more concerned about the voting restrictions or overturning powers that are being passed? I'm deeply concerned about both of these things, but um, I think. What's happening at the state level in state legislatures is is particularly unnerving um, because it means that uh, if Republicans pass certain um, or put certain people in key positions like attorney general or secretary of state um, in states that have Republican majorities, uh, and, and as we know, uh, through gerrymandering that's happening more and more often, um, they could actually just decide they don't like the results of the le- election and refuse to certify. So um, obviously, voter suppression is is a terrible un-American thing, and it does make it harder for Democrats to get majorities. I mean, we've seen this happening uh, in Wisconsin, for example. Biden got forty nine point five percent of the vote to Donald's, I think it was forty nine point three. So obviously Biden got more votes, and yet um, Republicans hold the vast majority of seats in the state assembly and state senate. Um, but again, uh, I don't know. It's it's hard enough to outvote voter suppression. I don't know how you outvote. A Secretary of State who just says, I don't accept the results of the election because a Democrat won. So that's probably the thing we have to be most, most concerned about. Um, but again, we should also be fighting voter suppression at every turn as well. Uh, the next question is from Daisy in Boston, and she asks, we Dems are nervous about the midterms. Why does it seem that the Dems in the Senate and House seem not to be acting in an urgent manner, or are they? She also asked, when will you be running? But I'm not going to answer the second question. Um, yeah, we should be nervous about the midterm for this reason. For two reasons, actually. The first reason is that historically, midterms always go in favor of the party that's out of power. So obviously that would mean um, Republicans, Uh We've seen this happen time and time again. Uh, Barack Obama got slammed in the 2010 midterms. Uh, it was just an absolute slaughter. What I think is even more concerning here, though, is that this is even a question, because this is not a normal time. The Republican Party, or the leader of the Republican Party, who still, for reasons that are somewhat mystifying, is Donald, um, encouraged an armed insurrection against our government, and yet he roams free. Um, Almost 100% of elected Republicans stand with him. They perpetuate his first big lie, which is that the 2020 election was stolen from him, which it was not, and the second big lie that the insurrection was no big deal. So... This is not a normal midterm. Nobody should be treating it as a normal midterm. And Democrats are the ones who should be winning in a landslide to counter the encroaching fascism of the Republican Party. So it's such a failure of the media that it's not being framed that way. Um, So I hope that uh, the Democrats have a plan to uh, deal with this with a little bit more public urgency. Um, but again, as I, as I said, uh, when Joyce and I were speaking, having these January 6th hearings televised uh, will go a long way towards um, helping people understand just what is at stake in 2022. Uh, the last question for today is from Casey, who asks, How do we coexist when a larger minority of the population in this country are literally in a cult and brainwashed? What methods would save them at this point? I live in a red region and I'm the only person in my family, besides my significant other, who's a progressive liberal minded individual. It's exhausting and seems as though there are no real solutions. I'd love to hear your thoughts, particularly from a psychological aspect. Well, how do we coexist? I I think as it's become increasingly clear, we don't. We're so polarized that it, it isn't just that we're di- we differ on policy though. We're dealing with people who um, won't wear masks or get vaccinated to protect their fellow citizens, thereby putting us and our children at risk, which I think is kind of unforgivable. Uh, This is similar to a question I used to get a lot before the 2020 election, you know, how do we reach out to people who are gonna vote for Donald in 2021? And my answer, sorry, 2020, and my answer was always don't. Don't waste your time. If they voted for him in 2016 and after everything that's happened in the last four years are gonna vote for him again, there's no discussion to be had. Don't waste your energy, don't waste your time. Focus on people who might actually be willing to listen what you have to say. And I know that sounds harsh, but again, putting on top of that the way, the way a lot of people have handled COVID and the selfishness with which they refuse to do the simplest, most basic things to keep themselves and the rest of us safe, I just don't see the point. We don't have a lot of time here. We have 11 months or three years and 11 months to get this right and to save this country's future literally. So I know it's hard, especially when you have family who are part of the cult or who seem to be perfectly fine with the fact that the Republican Party is going the way of the, of fascism. However, uh, they probably don't see it that way. So what I would suggest to you, well, first, I, w- I think I would suggest don't ever talk about politics. But if it does come up, put it in the context of the personal. Um, in other words, just say, like, how how are you okay with putting children in cages after tearing them out of their parents' arms? How are you okay with, um, you know, allowing species to go extinct because, uh, you know, we refuse to stand up to the, the gas and coal industries? You know, how are you okay with the human toll that's being taken by, um, all of the egregious things that were done by Donald and his administration over the last four years, and see if see if that that will do any good, but if not, just uh, just change the subject would be my advice. Um, anyway, Thank you all so much for your questions i 'm sorry i didn 't get to many of them, but I did not want to stop talking with the phenomenal Joyce Vance um, But do please uh, send in questions next time and hopefully I'll have I'll have time to answer more again. uh, Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Mary Trump Show with my guest Joyce Vance. Um, I always want to try to bring you guests who will enlighten and inform uh, while also keeping it as light as possible in these pretty dark times and just you know, have fun when we can and laugh when we can, please send me your questions to all one word, politicon.com, or look for the address in the show notes. I'd love to hear from all of you. And definitely follow The Mary Trump Show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review because it really helps other people find the show. Thank you. Stay safe. And I'll see you next week.